0: Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah chapter 4, as we continue to work our way through this book. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they resort it, restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their wall, their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to the plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Samballad and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burden is failing, there is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and spears and bows and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people do not be afraid of them remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan we all returned to the wall each to his work From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each laborer on the work, excuse me, labored on the work with one hand and held this weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, The great, the, excuse me, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. And the place where you bear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures or stands forever. May be seated. I'm I'm so thankful as I come to preach God's word to you this morning that I don't have to do so in my own strength, uh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, because this morning I don't have much strength. I'm pretty tired. Uh, But let's go to the Lord then in prayer, and let's pray for His might to be here and for Him to speak to us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank You so much that what we have before us is the words of life. We thank you, God, that this is the inspired, infallible uh, word of God. Uh, and may we receive it as such. Lord, uh, we, I do thank you, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that we preach not because we're great, great preachers or because we're great orators or we have great polish or power or influence or anything like that. We merely speak the word of God. And so I'm so thankful, Lord, that today this depends upon you. And I pray for you to speak to us as your people and for you to work in our hearts to receive that word, Lord, by faith and to obey it, to draw comfort from it, Lord, to be encouraged, uh, Lord, to turn our eyes to you. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, how are you doing today? You know, if if, uh, people ask you that question after church, I would say 99% of the Christians say, I'm fine. fine. Do you guys know what (laughs) fine means? Fine means frenzied, insecure, neurotic, and exhausted. Right? And if we're honest, I think that's oftentimes the way we feel. Even though people say, how you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. You know, you may have had the most terrible week in the world, and yet, you know, we just always say that we're doing fine. but. The reality is, even as God's children, we struggle with weariness, we struggle with discouragement, we struggle with fear, and we feel overwhelmed. Uh, Oftentimes, we feel the weight of the world on our shoulders. Now, not everyone feels that way, and, and not all the time. But I would say many times we feel that way. And there may be some of you who are here today that say, Oh, Pastor Rick, that's where I live my life is right there, under the weight of the, the uh, world on my shoulders. Um, and it, it just happens for us as Christians. It's part, actually, of the Christian life. And Sarah Ival, who's an author, she's a women's speaker, uh, she was sort of describing a time in her life where, where she was struggling And she said, I I felt like I had a great cloud hovering over my head that I had to constantly push back. I don't know if you ever have felt like that, where there's just these times where there's this cloud hanging over you and you don't really even know why. Well, Sarah goes on and she said, it seemed like a cloud of opposition from the world tempting me to think that I was failing at worldly success, uh, that I would doubt from my own flesh that I should continue in the work that the Lord had given to me. A, a cloud of lies from the enemy taunting me. And, and she said, what's so bad about all this? She goes. Initially, she goes, it didn't even make sense. She said, the, the time in which I was going through this was a season of great ministry. The Lord was using her in many ways at that point in her life, she said, to see the kingdom of God built up in her teaching and her speaking And in her writing, uh, but she said, despite that, she said, but I keenly felt the world closing in around me like a tempestuous ocean, my own flesh devouring me like a silent killer and the devil prowling around me like a roaring lion. Don't we all feel like that at one time or another? And if you do, I just want you to know you're, you're not alone. You're in good company in this crowd, right? Uh, last week, uh, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 3, and we considered how God calls His people to do His work. And in Nehemiah 3, that work was the rebuilding of the wall. In the New Testament church, we see that that really sort of translates over into the way that we as God's people are called to use the gifts and abilities that the Lord has given to us to do the work that God's given us to do in the church and, and outside into the community, uh, to do those uh, good works that Ephesians 2.10 talks about that God has given us. And so we sort of come to the end of Nehemiah chapter 3, and while it is a list of a lot, lot of names and places and stuff that are hard for us to pronounce, we sort of get to the end of that chapter when we understand what it's about, about how God's people work together, trusting the Lord, they had godly leadership and stuff, and you just sort of want to say, Go team! This is awesome! It's neat to see! God's people doing His work. But what do you do when you face opposition? When life kicks you in the teeth? When the the trials in your life just keep coming at you like wave after wave in the ocean uh, to knock you down? I think there's enough people here that have been to Florida or places like that and been in the ocean. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's hard to stand against those waves when they just keep, you can stand against one or two, but when there's a whole bunch, it's sometimes hard to do that. What do you do when discouragement sets in and worry begins to take root? Well, today we're going to to see that very thing happening as the people continue the work on the wall, and and it causes us to ask this question: How are we to think, and what are we to do when opposition comes our way, uh, especially as we're serving the Lord and seeking to honor him. And the first thing I want us to see from our text today in verses 1 through 8 is that opposition is inevitable. Opposition is inevitable. Kids, that means you can't avoid it. It's going to happen. It's part of life. And we see this opposition sort of mounting in these verses that we have before us. Um, But before we look at our text today, let me just... Uh, read to you, if I could, a few verses from Acts chapter 14, uh, verse 21 and 22. Acts 14, 21 and 22. Paul and Barnabas have been preaching, uh, and they have seen many people come to faith in Christ. Uh, They leave the town that they're in, and they go back through the different towns where they've already preached. They go to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, and uh, the text says, that they went there strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, they were saying to these young baby Christians uh, that there's going to be opposition in your life. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. There will be opposition. And so as you prepare to run the race that is set before you, like Hebrews 12 talks about. He says, I want you to not be discouraged. Also, I think what Paul wanted them to understand is that they, he didn't want them to draw false conclusions. Because sometimes don't we draw the conclusions that oppositions in our life signals God's disapproval of us. You know, when we're being opposed, when we're struggling, when we're going through trials, we can sometimes think, oh Lord... You know, what is wrong? What do I need to change? And so we're looking for things to be different. Um, and we draw that conclusion uh, that opposition, that a lack of opposition means that God has favor with us when the truth of the matter is oftentimes it's the opposite that it's true. That even with with those that God loves, there is that opposition. And we see this in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It's the people are... Walk- Working on the wall, then opposition begins to arise. And it comes from various sources, and it comes in different forms. And I want to look at those just a minute, if I could, this morning. The first thing we see in verse 1 and 2, is, and 3, actually, is that there's words of discouragement. Words of discouragement. Uh, verse 1, it says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. Now, have you ever thought about this? And we're going to actually come across that verse again, or that phrase again in this chapter. Did, have you ever thought about the fact that those who hate the church are enraged and they're greatly angered? Do you ever think about how much Satan hates the church? And so here he is greatly enraged and anger, and it says, and he jeered at the Jews. Kids, that means... He scoffed at them, or he mocked them, or he, he made fun of them, okay? He was belittling them. And in verse 2, Samballot, he asked five questions. And I'm not going to go through each one of those, but he was basically saying, in essence, who do these Jews think they are? You know, <laughs> with, their, with their small resources, I mean, none of them are builders that's working on this wall. Uh, you know, this isn't going to amount to anything. Do they think that they're going to make something of, of lasting change? And then, if that's not enough, then Tobiah, who's standing right there beside Sam Follett, he said, yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Now, that, that's actually a very interesting statement in light of the fact that archaeologists have unearthed part of the wall. And do you know how thick the walls were, kids? Nine feet thick. Nine feet, Okay. This is 20 feet across here. So not quite half of the sanctuary was how thick the wall was. I really doubt that a fox is going to jump on that and knock that over. But, you know, uh, these men were seeking to ridicule and to cast doubts in the minds of God's people in hopes of demoralizing them. Or maybe a better word would be to say, to discourage them. Uh, What they said didn't have to be true They just wanted to discourage them. And that's one of the oldest uh, weapons of our enemy, Satan, that there is. I mean, just think about 2 Kings chapter 18, uh, when Rabshakeh, the commander of the Assyrian army, came to Hezekiah, and he came up to the wall. Kids, picture him standing outside the wall, and he's speaking to the nobles, the officials on the wall. And, and basically, he's talking smack. You know, he's saying, well, we're just going to take and rip your city down or we're going to kill you guys. And, you know, and he's just sort of going through all this stuff. And, and the nobles on the city wall realized that these words are really causing the people of Israel to fear. And so they actually say to him, hey, why don't you quit speaking in Hebrew? Why don't you speak in your tongue? We actually understand your language. Um, because they didn't want the people to be afraid, uh, because that's a common tactic that that Satan uh, oftentimes uses. He doesn't really oftentimes come and attack believers head on. That draws too much attention to himself. And if Satan did that, then we would be more on our guard, but rather, he likes to approach us subtly. he He likes to whisper in our ears, and what what he says doesn't have to be true. And neither does Satan feel like he has to justify his arguments or anything. All he has to do is simply plant seeds of doubt and worry and half-truths in our minds uh, to take root and to grow. That's all he, he needs to do. And it's this kind of ridicule and intimidation that has always been something that the church has faced. And that's what's going on here in Nehemiah's day with these two uh, uh, leaders. Now, if that doesn't work, then oftentimes the opposition uh, begins to intensify. And that's what we see in verses seven and eight. Uh, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, here you go again. They were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem under the cause and confusion in it. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when those who are enemies of the gospel become angry with you. Because the reality is they're not really angry with you, they're angry with God. Okay, and they're just taking it out on you because you're his child. Uh, we, we have uh, had too much favor in our culture as a church. The church has been uh, used to culture sort of speaking positively about it. Of course, we're seeing that shift. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because I think in the church we have sort of compromised because of that. But as we face more and more persecution and hostilities towards others, we need to just understand that is the way that it is uh, with Satan and God in that battle. So anyway, what we see here though is Samballot and Tobiah, they're, they're rallying together these leaders to oppose the Jews and they're plotting together to fight against Jerusalem. Now, that's exactly how opposition works, is it not? Uh, that it's, it comes oftentimes uh, from different directions. That when we encounter opposition in the Christian life, it's not just one thing that opposes or two things, but it's oftentimes multiple things coming from Many different directions. Maybe there are some that are here today that are feeling exactly that. That this week has been that kind of week where Satan has been coming at you from multiple directions. It sort of reminds me of that scene in Lord of the Rings. And I'm no Lord of the Rings expert, so if I get this a little wrong, those of you that are, please forgive me. But as I remember it happening, uh, you know, it's that battle at Helm's Deep, right? Right. And you see the orc army that's coming up to, to Helm's Deep, and you know with this uh, sort of this pitiful group of people in Helm's Deep, and this mighty army of the orcs come up, and you think, wow, that is an incredible army. And then the camera sort of scans back, and you're like seeing all these other armies coming and joining them from all the different places, and you're going, whoa. Okay, yeah, now that's an army, and that's terrifying. And that's sort of the idea that's, that's happening here, that, that the Jews, that it's not just a, a few armies coming against them, but it's many armies. But we need to understand that no matter how intense the opposition is, the believer is not without hope. You know, if opposition is inevitable, and it is in the Christian life, then we need to understand that equally is true is the second point that prayer is crucial. That prayer is crucial. You know, in the face of the most serious opposition that he'd ever faced, what does Nehemiah do? But he takes the matter directly to the Lord. Look at verses 4 and 5. He pleads to the Lord. And then in verse 9 that we'll look at in just a minute, then uh, he also prays again, but also the people do as well. But verses 4 and 5, he says, Hear, O our God. Now, it's interesting. There's, there's no, there's no uh, description here. You know, it just, you know, last thing you see, Tobiah is talking about how a, a fox is going to knock down the wall. Then it doesn't say, Oh, and Nehemiah pray, prayed, and this is what he prayed. It just goes right into the prayer. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads. He's talking about that that temptation that uh, Sambal and uh, Tobiah are coming against the people to dishearten them, to discourage them. You know, you, you hear the phrase sticks and stones will break my bones but words will never hurt me. That's not true. And kids, you know that. When people say things, it hurts a lot. But but even more so when somebody is seeking to dishearten you, those words are oftentimes very powerful. And so he's praying, turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not covet their guilt or excuse me, cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from their sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builder. Now, you may notice something here. Uh, If you're a a student of the Bible, this is an imprecatory prayer. Now, for those of you that may not know what an imprecatory prayer is, it is a prayer where you invoke a curse upon your enemies. Okay? And you're like, wow, Pastor Rick, that doesn't sound very biblical. And I think in the American church, uh, we oftentimes would say that because we want to focus only upon God's love and upon His grace, uh, but God is also a God of justice. And and he calls for that justice at times. And so we see David praying imprecatory psalms in places like Psalm 55 and Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 and many other places in the psalms as well. And so here Nehemiah is doing the same thing. Here is Sanballat and Tobiah. They're seeking harm to God's people. but But Nehemiah doesn't pray because these men are opposing him, or even because they're opposing God's people, but because he's, they're opposing God himself. If you remember back in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 20, where it talks about the work of the wall, the rebuilding of the wall, it defines it as the Lord's work. That this is what God wants. And so, for them to oppose this work, they're opposing God. And so Nehemiah prays that justice would be carried out in a situation where God's enemies sinned against him. Um, Lest you think this is just something in the Old Testament, you see the same kind of idea happening in the book of Revelation. You don't have to turn there, but you can write down Revelation 6.10 and go back and look it up later. But basically, the people who had been martyred for their faith cry out to the Lord and say, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were praying for God's justice to be done. Now, when it comes to those who persecute us, should we pray for their conversion or should we just pray down curses on them? That's a good question. You know? And the reality is, it's always appropriate to pray for those, um, for people's conversion. Jesus tells us that we are to pray for our enemies, but also. It is good at times to pray against the enemies of God and for his justice. Now, I think one thing you have to understand, if I can hopefully not make this too confusing, you have to understand that this prayer is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Okay? In other words, it's describing what Nehemiah did. It's not commanding us that we have to do something a certain way. Okay? Uh, But in this case, Nehemiah did pray. I mean, it's just like, if you remember back in Ezra, when the people sinned by taking foreign wives, what did Ezra do? He fasted, he prayed, he pulled the hair out of his beard. I can imagine that. He pulled the hair out of his beard because he was weeping for the people and their sin. Nehemiah, we're going to find later on, the very same thing happens. But do you know what Nehemiah does? Instead of pulling the hair out of his beard... He pulls it out of the the beard, the hair out of the beard of the people who caused the sin. Very different response, okay. And the Bible is not commanding us to do one or the other. It's just describing what it did, and it, it's the same way here with uh, Nehemiah. Now, I, I want to be very careful, okay, not to like water this down. Like we shouldn't pray against injustices. We should okay because when there's an offense against God we ought to pray that God's name would be hallowed but i think we also need to understand as i said earlier when people are attacking you with words how do you guard against that if there's false teaching you can then teach what's true but when people are seeking to discourage the people of God how do you battle against that and so here is Nehemiah you know thinking how disastrous Disastrous it would be that the builders became demoralized, and especially since they've accomplished almost half of the wall, and, and there's nothing he can do to stop Samballot or Tobiah, and so he prays, and he says, God, would you intercede? Lord, would you bring your justice on these men and stop them? Well, so we really need to understand that he prayed as he did because of the circumstances that he was in. But not only did Nehemiah pray, but the people prayed as well. Verse 9, uh, we see that as the enemies began to storm the, the Jerusalem, the builders began to storm the throne of grace. And, it, and we read simply, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Now, I think it's interesting that these people believed not only in the necessity of prayer, but the necessity of work as well. The idea of praying to God and also then setting up a guard, we're not diametrically opposed. In all the work that a Christian does, it ought to be a combination of prayer and work. Prayer and work. You know, but it's not uncommon to meet Christians who are like, we just need to have a prayer meeting. We have this trouble, we just need to have a prayer meeting. And just, we're going to trust the Lord. Then there's other people that are so focused on, well, what do we have to do for the Lord? But they never get on their knees and talk to God about it, they just get it done. You know, and we can fall into either ditch. But the balance is that we are to always move forward in prayer and work. And that's what we see here in Nehemiah. Uh, and these people believed in the, that, especially in the face of the enemy's great opposition. Because there was much that the people of God could not do to stop them. Actually there was nothing they could do to stop these enemies. Their armies were too big. It was like the orc army. You know, there was nothing they could do to stop them, and, but they knew that they could pray to the God who could stop them and to do whatever was necessary. Oh brothers and sisters, oh that our lives would be characterized by the reality of such prayer that when there's that when trials come that we make our prayers to our God that, that when opposition arises, that we make prayers to our God, that when disappointment strikes, that we would make prayers to our God, wouldn't it be less affect wouldn't we be less affected by the turmoil of this world if we more frequently turned to the weapon of prayer and took our needs to the Lord. But even having said that, Just because we, excuse me, just because we pray. Bones in that water. Uh, Just because we pray doesn't mean that all of our troubles go away. Uh, Even in the midst of prayer, opposition continues. Look at verse 10. And and it's really interesting, and and it's really sad, actually, that in verse 10, The opposition comes not from the enemy, but from Judah, from the people of God themselves. Uh, Soldiers uh, say that friendly fire hurts the most. Whenever a soldier is killed by someone on their own side, the pain of that is so much worse than if the enemy shoots them. And it's very true. And, And that's what we see here with Nehemiah. Here he is watching these enemies who are saying that they're going to attack the city. And he's uh, being very careful to keep an eye on them. And then here on the inside is Judah, who's saying in verse 10, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. You see, this is the the nagging voice of doubt that oftentimes raises up. You know, the people of God are beginning to say the same thing that the enemy was saying, right? Uh, not the same words, but the idea was getting across. And they were picking up on this. Said, we can't do this. We're, we're too small. We're weary. There's nothing we can do. The burden is too great. And then on top of this, in verse 11, it says, And our enemies said, They will not know or see it till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. And so it's like Nehemiah is surrounded with enemies and also with doubters. And he said, if that's not enough, then in verse 12 we read, and at that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. In other words, they they kept nagging Nehemiah. They kept coming to him over and over and over and pleading him to stop building the wall so that Sanballat and Tobiah and the other rulers would leave. There's some commentators that believe that what's happening here is is that these... uh, These leaders are coming to these people and saying, you know, your your, uh, family may be working on the wall, but, you know, we're going to kill you uh, if they continue to work on the wall. So they wanted Nehemiah to stop. And so they called for a surrender, to, to surrender to the enemies of God. Now, there are times when the people of God have great faith and they rise to the occasion, right? And they sort of stand in the gap. They're bold for the things of God. And whenever that happens, we love that. Not only when we read the scriptures, but even as we read biographies of great Christians who do that, or we even see someone else in our congregation, or maybe the Lord uses you to stand firm, and you just sort of walk away going, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. And then, there's the other 99% of the time, Right? When God's people see danger and they run. And when they face opposition and they flee. And when their reason tells them that they need to walk by sight, not by faith in God and in his promises. And that's what Judah did. Ten times coming and begging Nehemiah, please stop. But, so this is how Nehemiah responds to this in verse 13 and 14. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked around, looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Now, Nehemiah uh, has, understands that he has overwhelming odds that are against him. He's facing this huge army that's coming towards Jerusalem, but he also has this group of other people who are doubting, and others who are trying to convince him to surrender, and rather than Nehemiah turning back, what does he do? He turns upward. He looks upward to his God. Brothers and sisters, this is the way God's people are called to face opposition, by turning upwards. What does it say in verse 14? He says, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. It's sort of this idea of a person who stands against all odds and he's not afraid because he trusts in the Lord. And Nehemiah says, First of all, remember the Lord. This is covenant language that his people are to remember what God has done. And also I think there's a sense here in which the people of God are... Minded, uh, what um, they are called to do for him, as well, and uh, that he is their God. Uh, But Nehemiah doesn't pretend that there's no opposition or that the odds are are greatly in his favor. He sees things as they are, but uh, but he really is putting his trust in God, Um, and that's why Nehemiah not only says do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. But he goes on to say, and it really, well, before I read what he says, this is almost like a scene out of a movie, right? I mean, if you, if you think about it, you could almost see Nehemiah sitting on a horse. Of course, I don't know if he was or not, but you know, you could almost see him sitting on a horse. He's looking at his people. They're all tired from working and and their, their eyes are sort of shaky and, and he says to them, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. And you can almost hear someone in the crowd say, for Narnia! <laughs> right? I mean, that's almost what you expect to hear. Only they would have said, for Jerusalem! But Nehemiah holds this out for the people saying, it's all on the line here, people. If, we, if the battle is lost, then your homes are lost. Your families are lost. Your wives are lost. And so he challenges them to stand firm in the Lord and to put their trust in Him. And that brings us to our last point and that's the answer to prayer. In verses 15 through 23, the answer to prayer. And we see this answer to prayer first uh, when the people return to work in verse 15. Uh, uh, and not only that, but then we see that God frustrates the plans of the enemy. Now, we don't know what the plans were. It doesn't really give us those details. But we do know that God thwarted those. And then there's this long description beginning in verse 16 of the work. And it, but it begins this way. For that day on, half of the servants worked on construction and half held spears, and shields and bows and coats of mail. And this shows that Israel was all in. That when, he, when Nehemiah called them after prayer to follow the Lord and to trust him, that they were saying, yes, we will trust the Lord. And so the work of the Lord continues. Half the people working, half the people protecting like an army. Some people were actually doing their work with one hand and carrying a weapon with another hand. And standing beside Nehemiah is a man holding the trumpet. And you might ask, well, why is that? Well, that's because the people were spread out everywhere. And there were some places where the wall wasn't quite as high. And so they were very vulnerable. And so the plan was, is if you hear the trumpet, rally to that point. So that they could fight. But I think it's interesting what he says at the end of verse 20. He says, our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. Through this whole thing... Nehemiah has trusted that God is the one that will continue his work. That God will be the one that will be with his people. And because he is with his people, they can do the work that he's commanded them to do. And so they work. And they went from early morning till the stars came out, verse 21 says. And then finally, Nehemiah says in verses 22 and 23, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night, and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who follow me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapons at his right hand. In other words, kids, they slept in their clothes. Because they wanted to be ready. If the enemy showed up, they wanted to be able to get up and fight. You see, the people were not only in, but they stayed in. They were persevering. This was a long and a continuous battle. And there are some of you who are here today, and you have been in a long and continuous battle. And you are weary, and you are tired, and you are struggling. And in one sense, you know, the chapter ends uh, sort of unresolved. Uh, the chapter ends with Nehemiah and the people armed for battle while they're doing the work, and they're not taking much of a break. But you know what? This is a beautiful portrait of the church. You may say, well, how is that, Pastor Rick? Well, you know, every story in the Bible is a part of a bigger story. And in many ways, what we see here is a portrait of the plan of God and the people of God and the enemies of God. And Nehemiah 4 is not merely about Sam, and Tobiah versus the Jews and the rebuilding of the wall, but it's really part of a much larger battle. A much larger story. Why is that? Well, because there has always been opposition towards the people of God and the plan of God, ever since the beginning. From the very beginning of the Bible, God introduced a plan for his people, and there have always been those who have uh, been against it. And Sam Ballad and Tobiah, they just represent a dark league that stands against God and his people, not only uh, in frontal attacks, but also in through confusion, and through discouragement. But what is it that discourages us the most in the church? What is it that hinders us most in the church and the work of God? What is it that causes us to back away and to retreat when it comes to the work of ministry in the church? Let me suggest to you that it's typically not the attacks of the enemy, but it's often the friendly fire. It's the attacks from within the church that causes more trouble than anything. The scoffing that Sam Ballot did in verse 2 started coming out of the mouths of the people in verse 10. Uh, the threats that Sam Ballot made in, in verse 11, the people believed and acted on in verse 12. And so they were in one sense sort of being used of the enemy even within the household of God to cause dissension and struggle and to really bring opposition, to give up, to quit, to surrender, to go home. You may be here today... And you may have experienced that. I mean, I, I praise God. I've not seen that in our church. I actually pray against that a lot, that God would give us unity. He would give us a sense of oneness and peace. And I think the Lord has answered our prayers. That's not to say we will never struggle with that. But you may be here today, and you maybe you're going through that. Maybe you've encountered opposition and things that you've been wrestling with, and Christians around you are not feeding you godly wisdom. They're not bringing to you what God's Word says. Maybe they're bringing to you the wisdom that's out there in the church at large, the things that trickle down, the things that that are causing you to be disheartened in are struggling. But here again, if I might encourage us, let us turn our sight upward, not looking to... Uh, the world and for our encouragement as we as we look at this story, you know we look at who is the hero and of course Nehemiah is I mean he's a fantastic leader he he he, uh, he walks by faith but when you look at this story uh, the question in verse two is a very striking one can this city be revived? in other words, is there hope? you know can the people of God do that which God has commanded them to do and the answer is yes but it's not yes because Nehemiah is a great leader or even because the people are faithful but the answer is yes because of the greatness of the God who fights for us and we can have hope in the face of opposition and discouragement and fear and worry because of the greatness of God who fights for us did you hear me brothers and sisters we can Have hope in the face of opposition because of the greatness of the God who fights for us. Do you believe that God is that great? You may say, Yeah, Pastor Rick, I I believe he's great. Do you believe that God is able? You may say, Yeah, I believe that he's able. I think he can do it. Then my question is this Do you believe that God does fight for his people? That may be another question, maybe not so easily answered. Sometimes I think we can think that God is able and sort of a generic, you know, in a distance like, yeah, I know He can do that. God can do just about anything. But when it comes to believing that God actually does do these things for His people, sometimes that's a stretch of our faith. But when Jesus came into the world, He faced strong opposition from the beginning. He lived on this earth under the greatest of obstacles. And those obstacles didn't come from his enemies most of the time. They came from friendly fire, from the wayward, doubting, frustrating, discouraging people of God. I mean, how many times did Jesus have to rebuke his own disciples for their lack of faith in what he was saying? Or how many times did Jesus perform some great miracle and the people were like, wow! And then just shortly thereafter, they doubted him and they walked away and they wouldn't follow him. Nehemiah paints a picture of that kind of opposition, yet God shows himself faithful over and over and over. And I hope you see through this chapter that opposition comes and we pray, and more opposition comes and we pray and we trust the Lord, and we stand on His promises, and the opposition comes, and we continue to stand on His promises. It's a constant back and forth. It is, it is a battle. But God not only hears our prayers, and He wants to protect us, but ultimately He saves us. And He does that. He's the great promise keeper. He's able to accomplish all His holy will, and He has saved us through the death and resurrection of of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His life, brothers and sisters, we can have eternal life. But where does that leave us? Where does that leave us, even as children who face opposition? Well, I would suggest to you it leaves us in exactly the same place where the Israelites were at, at the end of chapter 4. Holding a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other hand. On the one hand, constantly striving to build up the body of Christ, to do The work that God has given us to do. And yet at the same time, recognizing that we live in a world that's exactly as Jesus described it. Full of opposition. Sometimes friendly fire hurts. And sometimes we get hit by those that are supposed to be on our side. But the battle is not done. The battle is not done, brothers and sisters. Let me read, if I could, the words of a hymn that you may not think of when you think of a battle. It's the hymn, This is My Father's World. The last verse says this, Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Brothers and sisters, one day we will be with God once again, face to face. Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Then Jesus goes on and he says this, he goes, In the world you will have tribulation. So he just tells you. He said,